0: Lamentations, chapter four, page six hundred eighty-nine. In the few Bibles that are provided for you, hear God's holy word. How the gold has lost, grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infants sticks to the roof of their mouths for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets, those who were brought up in, the, in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which, has overthrown, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than, than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than, than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker. Than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bodies. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath, he poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, the people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched. For a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They laid in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils the Lord appointed was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of us. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Light stuff again, right? So one of the reasons that I love and loving more of the book of Lamentations is that it's real. Uh, it's, I love what the book does not do. It does not answer or resolve the pain of God's actions quickly or neatly, right? It doesn't quickly it's just say, like, let me do the quick fix for you. It, it, it does not answer all of our questions. It doesn't communicate away the things that, that communicating in a way that th- makes things all nice, neat, and tidy, or even comfortable. And it doesn't downplay the significance of our struggle. And it doesn't downplay the significance of our pain that we have in our lives. Lamentations is not even linear. It's not neat and like a really kind of great story. And that is why I love it. After all, life, our, our Christian life, is not always predictable. And our Christian life is not always manageable. Our Christian life is not always nice, neat, and linear, right? So suffering, whether it's innocent or deserved, does not always follow a really nice, neat Formula And grief, as you know, certainly is not a nice, tame kitten. The emotions, the questions, the fears, our struggles, the frustrations in the midst of hardship are very real, are very difficult. And at times, they feel almost insurmountable to process. That is why this category of lament is so helpful for us as a church. It gives voice to those emotions and the struggles that we have in this life while directing our thoughts godly. Lament is inherently Christian because it is a prayer that pours out our very heart to God. Lament mourns what has happened, and it anchors us to what we truly believe, it hooks into those truths of God's promises, and it looks expectantly to that one day where God is going to make all things right. So what we are going to see here, or what, let me kind of do a, a recap of what we've seen so far. In chapter 1, we are introduced to this book and, and the poetic and the graphic descriptions of the fall of the city of Jerusalem. We we learned about the devastating consequences of sin in our world. In chapter 2, we saw the bigness of God's righteousness and how He can at times feel like an adversary when we turn from Him towards sin. Chapter 3, we, we climbed kind of that, that summit of lamentations, and we saw the hope of new mercies being offered every morning, and a confidence that we can have in God's faithfulness. Additionally, we learned that, Great is thy faithfulness, that the great song that we tend to sing around the Thanksgiving time was declared by Jeremiah in the midst of the ruined, dilapidated city of Jerusalem. Great is thy faithfulness was a a faith statement. Whoa! In the midst of this brokenness, great is thy faithfulness. Is that how you respond? In the midst of your brokenness, the the hurt and the suffering and the struggle that you have in this life, is the first thing that comes out of your mouth, great is thy faithfulness, or is it me dig me out of this pit what can I do to move more quickly so Jeremiah is in this that chapter he is lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem and he is clinging to what he knows to be absolutely true about his God he uses lament to, to express his sorrow and to anchor his hope in God but the book is not done. We have two more chapters and they are not necessarily upbeat. I want to apologize for for scripture, right? You know, that's kind of my... I'm sorry guys. But the reality is this is how it was written. And it's for a purpose. Both chapters 4 and 5 contain, if we look carefully, they contain glimmers of hope. More so than then chapters 1 and 2 but they're still dark the promise of who God is and the pain of life exist together and is not necessarily they are not necessarily reconciled so chapter 4 in particular shows us God's mercy that comes after brokenness we're going to see God's mercy that comes after our brokenness. The hope of chapter 3 is still absolutely true. But Jeremiah reflects on how broken the people really are in this moment. God has deconstructed His people such that their only hope in this moment and for their life can only be on God and God alone. He has broken them so much that the only thing that he can do at this moment is rebuild them. He's taken away all the things that they have used as crutches so that they will look to him alone. And that's an image and maybe a word that you need to kind of start tucking away. Crutches. Crutches. I know it's not a biblical word that you're in here, but it's kind of giving me this key word that we need to kind of keep coming back to crutches. So do you know that the Bible commends this kind of brokenness? Brokenness. Do you know that brokenness can be a God-ordained path to mercy? I remember uh, working with. Uh, one time I was uh, on staff at Manitoba as a staff chaplain and I remember having a conversation with one uh, particular individual who was uh, really seriously considering ministry and he goes, you know, I I can't sing a song about uh, brokenness is what I long for. Brokenness is what I need. He goes, Paul, I I just don't think that's biblical. I, I don't think that's right for me to sing about longing for brokenness. But if we look at Psalm 51, For you do not delight in, in sacrifice, or, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 34, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions, afflictions, the broken, of the the righteous, but the Lord delivers delivers him out of them all. Matthew 11, Jesus' words, Come to me, all who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the right time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. By brokenness, I mean when God removes the objects of your trust, of our trust, such that we are driven, we are driven in hoping only in Him. It's a season where the, the crutches of your life have been totally kicked out. They've been removed. And your only hope for standing and surviving is God. Sometimes brokenness can come, come along because of our own sin, right? Some of you have experienced it. Well, I think we've all experienced it. Sometimes it comes because of the, the sin of someone else. We experience it this pain and the suffering because of someone else. Sometimes it comes along because it's just the general brokenness of the world that we live in. And it is broken, right? It is broken, right? Right, okay, Talk back is nice. But give me a little bit more. And so regardless, the result is the same. Brokenness awakens us. To our need for God's mercy. Brokenness does something to the soul we're all in It's kind of like um, lime or lemon. What does it do when you get a taste of it? It just kind of awakens you. In the same way, brokenness does the same thing it awakens you to the, your need for God's mercy. So, can you think of a time when God removed some crutches in, in your life? Things that you were depending on for strength and stability. Or maybe God has placed you in a situation or a scenario that has become very disappointing. Almost a like a season in the desert. I hope that you can find some hope And spirit of comfort from Lamentations 4. So let's start. The first thing I want you to see is that there is truly a a broken people. After identifying the faithfulness of God in in Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah quickly returns to the lament to to the brokenness that's around him. You know, he doesn't just say, ah, oh, faithfulness is gone. Let's forget about everything. Let's move on. Let's add a few flowers. Let's spruce it up. Let's do some spray cleaning. And everything's going to be bright, bright and, and uh, smell really nice. Everything's going we're going to give this illusion that everything's okay. No, he returns back to the destruction after remembering. Great is your faithfulness. But the focal point is very different. Once again, there are 22 verses, right? Remember last week, how many, pop this, how many verses were there last week? Six. Very good, good. It returns back to 22, with each verse starting with the subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. However, the verses are a lot shorter than the first two chapters. Additionally, chapter 4 starts again with the word, How. The Hebrew word "how," which serves as the thematic title for this book, how, O oh Lord, how is this possible? And so the focus is on the brokenness of the people of God and highlights the destruction of things that they had hoped in before. There is no longer any hope in their culture. There's no hope in their leaders. There's no hope in any other nation to save them and to come and rescue them. The nation of Israel has nothing to hope in except for. They're gone. They've been stripped of everything. All of their crutches have been taken out. And let's see how this plays out. First of all, we see a degraded culture. Israel was proud of her status as being God's chosen people. There was something special about being uh, their God's nation, His chosen people Something special about having the temple where God resided, having a certain place in the world structure. But now the glory of Israel had completely faded. The glory years of the past were long gone. And if you captured a picture of the nations during the reigns of David, of Solomon, of Hezekiah, or Josiah, and then compared it to this very scene, it would have been utterly shocking. You're going, really? Is that Israel? Is that possible? Everything in Israel is inverted and it is degraded. The first verse kind of gives you, helps you capture this theme, right? How the gold has grown dim. This phrase has kind of two possible meanings. First, uh, since the beauty of the temple was its goal, when you came up, rose up and saw it, the city of Jerusalem, it was a bright, shining place. The temple was gilded in gold, and it was the beauty of Israel. And it could have meant the general, it was a general statement of the city's destruction. We, we might say the lights have grown dim in, the, in New York City. The lights have grown very dim in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem lies in in rubble and her gold or what was left of it is covered in dirt and it's covered in in ash. The city no longer gleams as as a beacon to the whole world. But secondly, it could also mean that the gold and the reference to the to the holy stones in verse 1 could be a figure of speech for the people of Israel. The people were once considered themselves as as gold or precious and the other nations were of less Value. They were lesser. So if the statement can be communicating the very humiliation and the degrading of their, themselves. The nation of Israel no longer sat in a divine state of favor. They and their city had grown, grown dim, and the people of God had lost their luster. And verse two seems to point toward the second meeting with the identification of precious sons worth their weight in gold are now regarded as what? Earthen pots. pottery. An earthen pot was, was a common container. Nothing special about it. Earthen pots were cheap, they were disposable, and they were noted for what they contained not for the vessel itself. So Israel had fallen from this valuable family heirloom to a commonplace vessel. Her stock had totally tanked. In verse 3 to 4 we see how cruelly the, cruelly the people of Israel even treated each other, right? You read these and you go, Really? That's what life is like. Jeremiah did some really good visual pictures here. And so if you're a National Geographic fan, kids, here, here's some good things to be looking up later. He, he says that the people treated one another worse than how a jackal would treat her own young. At least a jackal would feed her children. He also compares the nation to an ostrich. Now, when we think about ostriches, what do we think an ostrich does? It it runs, there's one piece. It sticks its head in the sand, right? But there's there's one more piece, a piece that you, you can see in Job chapter 39. An ostrich is notorious for leaving her eggs unprotected. Notorious. Maybe it's the running. Maybe it's sticking the head in the sand. Who knows? But it is notorious for abandonment. In, in verse 4, we read about children who are dying of thirst and begging for food and no one is willing to share and no one is willing to help. That is a testament of a nation, isn't it? It's an indication that something is wrong, that they are not even protecting the youngest among them. The present reality is tragically different than their past. The nation used to feast on delicacies and be clothed in fine garments. But now there was only death, there was destruction. And while Sodom's destruction was quick, Israel's discipline had extended much, much longer. You almost want a quick death, don't you? But this was like on and on and on. The destruction of Israel was more significant than the fire and brimstone of Sodom. Their, their princes have lost their elevated status and their superior lifestyle. No one even recognizes, never recognizes them, and they ravaged, are ravaged by hunger and thirst. The siege of Jerusalem was even devastating. It could have been better, it was better for them to feel, like verse 9 says, to be killed in battle than to endure the suffering of the city. Things were so degraded that mothers turned to cannibalizing their own children. Not a picture of a thriving society. And Jeremiah saves this statement as the lowest moment in the description of Jerusalem's suffering. And why did all of this happen? We've got to ask, why? Why was the cause of this degradation of Israel's of, of their culture why did this come about verse 11 tells us God was disciplining his own children for their rebellion Israel had had come apart at the seams everything was ruined the glory days are not just gone they are dead and buried Israel as a people as a nation as a culture is totally lost they are a broken people. So it's not only just this idea that there's this degraded culture, there's also a a discredited leadership. So when the people are, often when people are in crisis, one of the first things that they do is they look up, they look to their leaders for some kind of hope in the midst of this crisis. Somebody lead us out of this. Help me out. And and I've seen and experienced this even as a pastor. When your marriage hits the fan, it's often way too late, right? Help! Help us out! We're at critical. Or when things are falling apart here, or falling apart there, they must help me out. Then verses 12 to 16, we see that even the spiritual leaders of the people have been completely discredited. And on top of being discredited, they've been run off. They've been pushed out. The people have no confidence in the people who used to and were called to lead them. The overthrow of Jerusalem was just a shocking turn of events. And Jeremiah reminded the reader that a very important reason for this destruction was the failure of spiritual leaders. Verse 13 could not be any clearer. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. So the the false prophets who had not listened to Jeremiah and and they they hadn't listened at all and, and they gave the people of Israel a false confidence that they were not in any kind of grave danger. Don't worry about it. Live the Israelite dream. You are God's special people. Do whatever you want to. Eat, drink, be merry. They were not taught to follow the law. They were not rebuked when they fell into sin. The spiritual leaders did not warn the people or call them to repentance. What's more, they were involved in the shedding of innocent blood Likely the murder of the prophets whose messages that they hated. And the effect according to verse 14 was that the spiritual leaders wandered around the streets like blind men. Their garments were so defiled with blood that no one even dared to come near them. In fact, the people were so repulsed by their leaders that they kicked them out of the city in verse 15. And don't miss the tragic irony of these words. Away! Unclean! Don't touch! And this was being said about the very priest whose role was to say these things. Now the people are saying, these leaders, away! Don't touch! Unclean! Their leaders have been rejected by their people. And who is behind all of this? What is, what, what, what is this happening, going on? Verse 16 tells us very clearly. Once again, it's the Lord's doing. The Lord himself had scattered them. He will not regard them no longer. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. So the very face of the Lord who had promised a bring blessing. Okay, think about what we do every Sunday at the end. Lift up your hearts and your hands and receive the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May His face shine upon you and give you peace. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So these are the words, the, the promises, the, the blessing that is giving, that the Lord will make His face to shine upon you and give you peace, is now, this very face of God is now bringing judgment on His people. And part of that judgment is the rejection of his priests. And God's face of judgment has changed what the people saw in the face of his priests. Their culture was degraded. The leaders are discredited. There's nothing left for Israel to hope in. Perhaps, perhaps there's one more place they can look. Another nation. Maybe another nation. Other people can help out. So part of Israel's pattern in the past is a quick reliance on neighboring nations to bail them out. A quick bailout. Which often means that they become servants of another nation, right? So time after time, people of God are warned, don't put your trust in these nations. But instead, put your trust in God. So during the siege of Jerusalem, The people had hoped that the nation of Egypt would come for a quick bailout. In fact, they they were so close during the Babylonian uh, occupation where Babylon was was encircling all of Jerusalem. Egypt was on its way. And the army marched close enough to draw away the Babylonian forces. But any hopes of being rescued by Egypt were quickly dashed. Egypt turned back, and went home. There was no one left to help them. The Babylonian army could not have been stopped. And verses 18 through 19 describe the fear, the terror, the despair the people felt during the siege and the the subsequent destruction. Note the phrases like, they dogged our staffs, our, our days were numbered. Even when Israel cried out for help, the Babylonians captured or ambushed them. Everything that they tried failed. Even their kings were captured. Verse 20 is a reference to King Zedekiah who attempted to escape but was was captured. This was the king under whom the people had placed their hope, even saying, under his shadows, we shall live among the nations. Not God's shadows, not God's wings, not God's protection, Under King Zedekiah, we will be under his wings and live among the nations. This statement is just another sad reminder how devastated the people were. And then we come to Edom, which is a a strange, another one of those historical things. It's really good that you know your complete Bible, not just the New Testament. Edom uh, was uh, a nation to their southeast. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. Anybody know anything about Esau? Mm. Need to know something about Esau. There have been centuries of tension between these two nations. Edom refused to give any aid to Judah during the Babylonian siege and the invasion, and then they gloated. They gloated on the fact that Israel was now in destruction. So, lament. And there was even a lament, an imprecatory, in other words, call down your judgment kind of psalm in Psalm 137. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. Nothing like great neighbors, right? So the brooding satisfaction of Edom was even outrageous for, the, for Israel. And an appeal is made to God for even their final destruction and their final judgment on that last day. Verses 21 and 22 kind of use the phrases for, to describe what Israel is hoping for. They're hoping for judgment. To you, the cup shall pass. Shame. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. Punishment. Your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish you. Punish. Or exposure. He will uncover your sins. So Edom is being warned here that your judgment is to come. She has not gotten away with her collusion with, with, uh, with Babylon. Edom ought to be warned as she looks at Israel because God is not going to spare her either. Even though they kind of hoped for help. So the people of God got mocked by their neighbors and have not been helped out by any other nation. God isolated them in their sinfulness. He removed all of their crutches, removed any kind of hope for any kind of deliverance from an outside nation. In other words, there was no earthly help whatsoever. It's all gone. Outside help. The nation is without help, both internally and external do you see how broken the people of God are in chapter 4 the entire nation has come apart at her seams and there's no apparent remedy God has removed every single crutch that they could rely on he's removed them all He has left them with only one hope. There are only 19 hopeful words in this entire chapter. But they're there nonetheless. Look at verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. Who's the daughter of Zion? Israel. It's accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. The only hope or mercy that is offered in this text is simply that God who is behind their judgment and their future as a nation is God, is in God's hand. The NIV kind of renders it this way. Your punishment will end, daughters of Zion. You, He will no, not prolong your exile, but He will punish your your sin, daughter of Edom, and expose your wickedness. So God has broken them that the only hope that they have is that God will bring an end to their punishment and that their exile will not, not be prolonged any longer. In other words, the nation is totally, totally at the mercy of God. Totally at the mercy of God. And that is not a bad place to be when life is hard or when life is painful. To be at the mercy of God is a beautiful place to be at. God will bring His people back to the promised land. They will not remain in exile forever. He will keep His covenant promises to them And in their brokenness, the faithfulness of God is all that they can hope for. I don't know where you are today. Perhaps you can relate to to the picture that we've seen here of the people of God being utterly broken. Just all the crutches have been removed. Maybe you can look at your life and you can see the ways in which God has removed crutch after crutch after crutch after crutch. And I'm sure there are some of you who can resonate with the feeling of being boxed in by God. Where everything that you have put your hope in, your, your trust in, you know, all those things are being removed piece by piece my peace in your heart. He's going, what is going on? I'm broken. I'm getting boxed in. God, have mercy. Oh, God, have mercy on me. You might have thought thoughts like this. I wasn't supposed to be single at this point. My marriage was not supposed to end this way or to look like this at all or My marriage and my family were supposed to be more fulfilling. Or maybe you think, I was supposed to have a real career. Or I figured out what I was supposed to do with my life when I grow up. Or maybe you you think, or you're experiencing, my kids weren't supposed to, they weren't supposed to turn out like this. They were supposed to be different. I have raised them the right way. And the fear and the admonition of more of most women are going. Or maybe you're going, I thought by this point I'd not still be dealing with these same sins or these same struggles day in and day out. Well, I thought maybe church ministry was supposed to have a bigger impact on people. And my prayer is that you will see these situations very differently my hope is that that you'll see that if any of these things led you to be broken such that you've reached out to God for help while they're painful and hard they actually serve as a very beautiful purpose Job's suffering led him to see God very differently. Job 42, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Friends, brokenness that leads to seeing God That kind of brokenness is not wasted. It's not a waste. Pain that leads you to trust in God alone is not pointless. The key, however, is whether or not we can embrace the brokenness that God brings because it will bring us something better. And do you know what that something is? God himself. The best thing that you can ever have is not a perfect marriage, not perfect children, not an amazing job, or some income, or to live long and prosper, which was a reference to what? Very good, Star Trek. It's never a goal to live like Star Trek. The ultimate goal in life is not all those things. The ultimate goal in life is God himself. To enjoy God forever. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not your job. Not your children. Not your status. None of those things. The chief end of life is... To enjoy God Himself. And if God has got to take brokenness and devastate you. And take away all the crushes of the things that you enjoy. Praise be to God if it brings you to God Himself. So friends, God broke Israel because her trust was not in Him. He could not allow her to continue down this path of rebellion and destruction and self-worth. That ultimately was against him. He he loved her, this nation, his people, too much to allow her to go wherever she wanted to go. To find pleasure and joy and satisfaction in anything else other than him. You see, this kind of perspective on brokenness changes absolutely everything. it actually makes you thankful. And this takes a kind of spiritual maturity. This kind of brokenness actually makes you thankful that God leveled you. We're not often thankful for God leveling us or anything leveling us, but it makes us thankful when God levels us because it actually brings us to Him. Brokenness leads to mercy. Because brokenness leads you to God. For a believer, that is the greatest treasure of all. God. So I don't know where you are this morning. I'm trusting you have started to identify what are some of those crutches. I want to encourage you in this week, still today, while it's fresh, maybe, communicate with a close friend, a spouse, your missional community, and say, i got to be honest. These are my crutches. These are the things that I I lean on to hobble through life. And God has intended me to not hobble through life, but to be underneath His wings, to be carried by Him, to run like the youth. That's what God has designed me to do, that I'm hobbling on these crutches. Would you pray for me? Would you hold me accountable? Would you expose my sin ever so gently? Would you encourage me like a brother or sister in Christ so that I can become more God-glorifying and God-honored? Friends, this is a word from the Lord. Father God, this morning, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so this morning, as, as we prepare, as we have heard from you, from your word, as we have Considered the crutches of our lives, which are extremely inadequate compared to the cross of Christ, Lord, would you give us hearts of repentance? No quick fixes, God. But would you give us hearts that lead to repentance, of begging for your forgiveness, and turning another way, which is to, to Christ and Him crucified? the one who has saved us. God, I pray that that we as a community of brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, a ragtag bunch of people, Lord, that you would use this sermon, Lord, to feed and encourage our soul, that you would help us to savor you more more than anything else, more than our children, more than our marriages, more than our friendship, more than our job, more than our bank account, more than our athletic abilities, more than anything else, Lord, that we would savor you and we long for you like a deer pants for the streams of living in cold water to nourish his soul, Lord, may we long for you more and more and more. For you alone are enough. And out of that enoughness, Lord, would you take us and send us into a world that is full of crutches. People who are blind to the crutches that they are using. And may we offer them life. Life that is found in Christ. So use us as recovering addicts Recovering self-righteous. Use us as the humble and the downtrodden, the exhausted and the tired, the hopeless. Use us who have found our ultimate hope in Christ to bring the hope of Christ to the world. This we pray in the very name of Jesus. The name that has power to save. The greatest. Amen.